Uh, happy Sabbath, church. And welcome to each and every one of you. And uh, once again, a welcome to our visitors. Uh, we're happy that you're here with us today. I, I have a confession to make. Um, I had it in my mind that I was going to say a sermon on a certain subject. Uh, however, the Spirit convicted me that, no, I should not speak on that particular subject. I should speak on a different subject. And the words that I say are, I hope that they reflect the, the wisdom of God. I, as a feeble human being, uh, put them together. But my fervent personal prayer is that they reflect God's wisdom, God's knowledge. And uh, the title of the sermon is not in the bulletin, unfortunately. But just so you know, the title of the sermon is Lessons from Paul. And you know, I, I, I really like Paul. And no, I don't mean Paul Henderson, who scored the winning goal in the 1972 Canada-USSR Hockey Summit and became a national hero, though I'm sure he's a great guy. I mean the Apostle Paul, because I admire the depths of his knowledge, his forceful intellect, his carefully reasoned arguments, his passion, his hard work, and above all, his undying, endless dedication to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul lived his faith. He suffered for his faith. And in the end, he died for his faith. You know, some of us have people in history whom we would really like to meet. And for me, Paul is one of those. There are so many questions I would like to ask him and so many issues I would like to discuss with him. And I really look forward to doing so one day. A large part of the New Testament consists of the writings of Paul, and these are in the forms of letters, usually to churches, in which Paul weighed in on theological issues of importance to the assembly, corrected mistaken beliefs and concepts, and offered reproof. I have heard you do this, he says, now stop. He also provided counsel and guidance. Some of his writings are incredibly dense. Just look at the book of Romans. This must be read time and again, each reading drawing out more strands of the very close argumentation that he sets forth. And interestingly enough, the apostle Peter in 2 Peter also states at one point that the writings of Paul are hard to understand. But on the other hand, some of his writings, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, are incredibly beautiful and moving. I want to take this opportunity to look at one of Paul's letters. And it is one that is sometimes overlooked because it is unlike his other epistles. It's very short. I talk, of course, about Philemon. It's only 25 verses long and in the original Greek had only 335 words. It takes up less than a page in your Bible. It does not deal with weighty issues involving an entire church. Rather, it deals with a particular problem faced by particular individuals. It is not a letter to be read from the pulpit to provide nourishment, encouragement, or correction. Rather, it's a very personal letter. Because it's so different from his other writings, 
Some have asked why it is included in the Bible. But the same question is asked about other Bible books. Why is Song of Solomon in the Bible? Why is Third John in the Bible? But quite frankly, such questions are completely irrelevant. The reality is that these books are in the Bible, so we are called upon to examine them, to understand them. So let's take a look at Philemon. And because it's a short book, this is going to be a short sermon. Well, we all know the basic story. Onesimus, a slave, has run away from his master Philemon. He meets Paul, who converts him to Christianity. Now Paul is sending him back to his master with a letter that Paul writes on his behalf. But within this very simple framework is a great richness of detail. I'm not going to go through the book verse by verse, because that's better done in the context of a Bible study. But I want to highlight a few items in Philemon that fully illustrate the richness of this short text. In the first verse, the very first verse, Paul introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ. Now some people have asked what exactly this means. But the phrase itself really has a double meaning. Paul is first a prisoner because he has surrendered himself to the Lord. He belongs to Jesus. He is a captive of his faith. But Paul is also a literal prisoner. He is in jail at the time he wrote the letter for having preached the gospel of Jesus. Paul tells Philemon in verse 5 that he has heard, quote, of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. This clearly illustrates what Christianity is all about. We have faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and because of this faith we show love towards others. When we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ it brings about a change in our hearts, our character and our actions. We become a new man or a new woman. As Paul says in Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Let us show love, kindness, gentleness, and goodness towards others. Paul knows that Philemon is in this position. A few verses later in verse 8, Paul begins his plea on behalf of Onesimus by saying, Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, Yet for love's sake, rather, I appeal to you. So Paul does not tell Philemon what to do. Instead, he appeals to him as a Christian brother. It is up to Philemon to reach his own decision. And this is all in keeping with God's will. One of the immutable principles of the Bible is that God is love. God loves us, and he wants us to love him. But he does not force us to do so. We must each make our own decision. In the Garden of Eden, God endowed the first humans with free will. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the Garden of Eden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a clear choice here. Enjoy the freedom that God has provided and live or eat of that particular tree and die. God gives us all choices. 
He wants us to come to him. But he wants us to come to him out of love. Recently on television, I saw Ty Gibson give a very vivid illustration of this concept of free will. Speaking to the single men in his audience, he said, I have a surefire way for you to get the girl that you want to marry to agree. Well, Peebo's ears perked up at this. People wanted to hear what he had to say. Then he added, put a gun to her head. I can guarantee she will say yes. But of course she says yes precisely because there is a gun at her head, not out of love. And if a gun is held to your head, there's unlikely to be any love after that. So in the case Paul cannot and does not ask Philemon to do what he, Paul, wants, Philemon, as I said, must make his own decision based on his own Christian love or his lack thereof. Paul reinforces this point in verse 14 when he says, But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be done by compulsion, as it were, but voluntarily. Again, service for Christ cannot be forced. That is why, as we spread the gospel message to others, we must recognize that while we can plant the seeds, it is up to each and every individual we talk to to make his or her own decision to come to the Lord. In verse 20, Paul notes, I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. The mention of Philemon's spiritual debt to Paul, because Paul brought him to Christianity, is not an attempt to cancel out his promise to repay Onesimus' debt. He's already pledged to do so. Since he does not appeal to Philemon on the basis of obligation, but Paul clearly hints at the direction he would like Philemon to go. A final point here when we're looking at these verses. In verse 21, Paul concludes his appeal by stating, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And what is this even more? Perhaps it is to give Onesimus his freedom. And given the affection that Paul has for Onesimus, as stated earlier in the book, this may be his hope and his expectation. Well, there's much more that a close reading of these 25 verses gives to us. But let's turn now to look at some general lessons that we might be able to draw from the book of Philemon. First, it speaks to all of us of the need to do the right thing. Returning Onesimus to Philemon was not beneficial to Paul. He would have preferred that Onesimus, his son as he calls him, remain to provide company and comfort for Paul in his time in prison. Returning to Philemon was not at first sight the best option for Onesimus either. After all, as a runaway slave, he could be punished or even put to death by a vengeful master. But it was right to follow the law, make restitution, and rely on the compassion and forgiveness of a fellow believer. Second, the book speaks to the need to have courage in our Christian journey. Onesimus needed courage and faith to return to a situation where his life might be in jeopardy. In Roman society, slaves had no rights at all. Masters could hand out punishments without limitation, including crucifixion. Onesimus was no doubt aware of the possible consequences of his return, yet he went 
So we at times may be called upon to show courage when facing crises of faith. The book itself also speaks of the incredible providence of God. God works in circumstances we might not even consider. And God works with people whom we might not, to whom we might not give a second thought. Thanks to the initiative of Brother Glendon, the church has been studying the book of Daniel. And in Daniel 4, God gave a dream to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream was read out in the reading from Daniel a little earlier on. Through Daniel, God states, Your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. And it was so. A heathen king. But God did not give up on him. Nor did God give up on a simple Roman slave. Verse 15 of Philemon says, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Perhaps it was God's working that Onesimus fled. Because in the end, a great good came out of it. Onesimus left as a criminal, found faith, and returned as a brother. A brother forever. An eternal brother. The book further shows the kind of societal influence that Christianity and faith can have. Paul in this letter does not label slavery as either positive or negative. For him it was simply a pervasive component of Roman society. It was deeply ingrained into every aspect of Roman life. Paul did, however, view slavery as a human institution, and human institutions, he believed, would fade away. But Christianity could have a role in helping these institutions fade away because Christians treated one another not as master and slave, but as brother and sister. As Paul so eloquently puts it in Galatians 3.26, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Fifth, Paul's letter shows the power of persuasion as opposed to the persuasion of power. It is an artfully crafted effort designed to nudge Philemon in the right direction. And Paul guides in several ways, worthy of admiration, I think. In verse 4 to 7, Paul has lots of good things to say about Philemon. And Martin Luther described these verses as, quote, holy flattery. In verse 5, which we looked at earlier, Paul says, I could have commanded you, but... This indeed affirms the principle of allowing things to be done out of free will and love, but it is also perhaps a modest example of what some have termed uh, an iron vest in a velvet glove. And in verse 14, it is almost as if Paul is saying, uh, Philemon, could you do me this favor? Oh, never mind. Well, the thought of that favor has been introduced, and it still lingers. Paul's request in verse 22 to, quote, prepare a guest room for me is also an example of indirect persuasion. When he comes as a guest, he will be able to ascertain in person that Philemon has indeed not disappointed him. It's a masterful letter, I think. Paul uses flattery, appeals to Christian love and forgiveness, subtle references to his own authority, and an indication that he is going to follow up in order to help 
Philemon make his decision. In achieving our aims, we, like Paul, I think, are all better served by using tact, kindness, and gentle words in a world today seemingly too inclined to use rudeness, force, and insensitivity. It's a Christian lesson. Six, Philemon, the book, encourages us to think in the longer term, to look at the broader picture. Whatever the difficulties of the day, better things await us. The new relationship in Christ between Onesimus and Philemon is one that will endure beyond this temporal world. And such relationships are not affected by earthly death. The Bible promise to all of us is that we will find a new world, a world in which those who are in Christ will be together eternally. We have this hope. We don't know what finally happened to Onesimus, but the historical record of the second century makes reference to Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus. If this is the same person, we can only give praise and we can only give praise for the transformational glory of God's love. Amen.